If... Good morning, everybody. I'm Luke, and I am not a master of anything. Uh, but uh, anyway, good to see you. I'm part of the teaching team here, and uh, we're continuing our series in the book of Ephesians that we're plugging away through for most of the year. I got a great question last week from someone who was brand new to the church. Last week was their first time with us. They came at the five, and this young man, he was, I think, 24 or 25, came up and introduced himself, and, and he uh, grew up a little bit around church, but kind of faith has become something in the last year or so that God's gotten a hold of his life and is about to move in this area, and blah, 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 the whole story. Um, but he asked me a great question. He said, how do I connect with God more in prayer? I think it's a question probably a lot of us, if we've ever tried to pray, <laughs> tried to have a relationship with God, maybe we've thought about, maybe we've asked, maybe we've wondered, maybe we even felt kind of embarrassed, to, am I allowed to ask that, am I allowed to think that? But he was saying, you know, I, I pray, and I sometimes just don't feel like I'm actually that close to God. Like I kind of do it, I know I'm supposed to do it, but, but sometimes it feels like my prayers sort of hit the ceiling and... I don't actually feel the closeness that I feel like people talk about. Anybody know what that's like? You've all been there. You've all thought that. You've wondered that. Maybe that's part of the reason we struggle to pray is because we feel like, well, I do this, and I kind of go through the motions of it, but I, this connection to God that people seem to talk about, I don't, I don't know if I have that. And so the first thing I told him was like, man, that is a great question. And <laughs> you know you're not the only person that's ever wondered that. Like, that's a very normal question. It's not like well, you must be on the outside of this God thing because you feel that way. No, that's how everybody who's on the inside of the God thing feels. And so I I affirmed that it was a great question. And there's a lot of different ways you can answer that question and a lot of different ways you could try to approach it. But um, what I said was, well, here's what I would do is I would pray what God cares about. And one of the ways you know what God cares about is through the scriptures. So I would pray the scriptures. The Bible is actually filled with a number of places where the people of God pray. In fact, the book of Psalms is a whole book devoted to the prayers of the people of God. And so one of my favorite things to do, especially when I feel like I'm not really connecting with God, I'm not sure he's hearing me, I'm not sure that he really cares about the things I'm praying about, all of which is not true, right? God does hear me, God does care, God does know. But in those moments when I don't feel like it, one of the things I like to do is go to the scriptures and just pray scripture. Take a prayer that's in the Bible and pray it. Turn it into my own prayer. Articulate it in my own way. And I feel like when I do that, at least I know God will care about what I'm praying and God will be close to me. Now, if you struggle with that, there's another thing that you can do this summer. We actually have a two-week class coming up called How to Pray. Pretty simple. If you're going to be around, we'd love to help you kind of build into that. That's something that's in your program is information about that. But the reason I start with that question is because what we have today in this particular passage is a model prayer. This is one of the perfect prayers that if you're trying to connect to God's heart, if you're trying to pray the things that God cares about, you might come to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, and pray this, because this is a tremendous prayer. This passage in verses 14 to 21 is really a kind of hinge point in the book of Ephesians. The first part of the book is really kind of Paul uh, praising God and through his praising and praying about God, showing us some really deep and important theological truth. The back half of the book, verse, or chapters four to six, are gonna be really talking about how do we live out the realities that he talked about in chapters one to three. So this 
prayer section in verses 14 to 21, the end of chapter 3, is this kind of hinge moment. It's this part that takes us to a new place. And so in order to, to understand this prayer, I think it's important that we get a little bit more of what Paul's been talking about in these last three chapters. This is helpful uh, for some of you because you just weren't here for this series. And others of you, it's been so long that you're like, oh yeah, oh yeah, what do we talk about? What's been going on? So let me give you just a brief summary and overview of this. If you have your Bible, you can flip back a few uh, swipes to Ephesians chapter 1. And chapter 1 is really Paul praising God and praying for the Ephesians. He began this way in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And he goes on this huge, long, run-on sentence uh, praising God. It's fascinating to me, by the way, I think this is important, that Paul teaches theology... Paul teaches doctrine through praise, through affection. Paul does not say, well, here's these cold, distant truths about God. He says, no, 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 let me praise God in front of you. And as I praise God, you'll see what God's like. So he talks about how God's a God who chooses, and God's a God who redeems, and God's a God of grace, and God's a God in whom we have redemption through his blood, and God's a God who's uniting heaven and earth, and God is a God who has big plans for the world, who seals us with his spirit. This is who God is, but Paul does that through praising God, and then he turns his attention to praying for the Ephesians in chapter 1, verse 15. He says, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And so he prays for them that they'd be able to see how great God truly is. And then chapter two is this chapter that's about this reconciling gospel. We learn in the first part of chapter two that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that we followed after the way of Satan, we followed after the way of the world, we followed after the way of our own flesh, And in the midst of that, God intervened. Look at what it says in chapter 2, verse 4. But God, two great words in the Bible. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And so that first part of Ephesians 2 is all about this vertical reconciliation that sinners who only deserve punishment, who are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, can, because of God's grace in Christ, be reconciled to God. That's glorious news. Then the second half of chapter two is about how this reconciliation doesn't just happen between us and God, but happens between us and one another. That the Gentiles and Jews who hated each other and were alienated from one another now are reconciled. Chapter two, verse 13. But now, again, but, but God, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And this reconciling is doing something powerful. It's not just reconciling individuals to God and individuals to one another. It's actually creating a new temple. And what Paul does in the end of chapter 2 is he uses language to describe the people of God as the new temple of God. The temple was the place where the glory of God dwelt. And now the church is that new temple. Look at what it says in 2.19 and following. So then, 
You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. See how he's kind of using construction, temple-type language? Verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So God reconciles us with himself and reconciles us with one another across all kinds of ethnic and racial and other kinds of divides. Why? So that he can create a new temple, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's what he said in chapter 2. Then we get to chapter 3, and look at how chapter 3 begins in verse 1. He says, for this reason, and he's about to start praying, but, but he, he says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner, and he thinks to himself, oh, wait, not everybody knows about my being in prison, and they probably, if they hear I'm in prison, will be discouraged by that. And so he kind of pauses for a moment, and in verses 1 to 13, he, he encourages them. He says, I don't want you to get discouraged by the fact that I'm in prison, and he explains that. He says in verse 13, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. And then verse 14, he says, for this reason. He picks up where he was going to say. I, I, remember, I've been talking about how you're the new temple of God. You're the new dwelling for God by the Spirit, and so for that reason, I'm going to pray for you. And so the prayer that we're going to look at is the prayer that Paul has in light of this glorious God of chapter 1 who's reconciling us and turning us into a new people in whom the presence of God himself dwells. He's going to pray in light of that. So that's what we're going to look at today is that prayer. What would we pray if we knew God wanted to make his home among us? That's what we'll look at. Before we dive in, let's pray together. Father, give us the power of your Spirit. Holy Spirit, show us Jesus. Jesus, show us the Father. Amen. First thing we see, we're going to look at three different things Paul prays for, three different places where he says, here's I'm praying that something would happen. The first thing... Paul prays for is that we would be plugged into God's power, plugged into God's power. Look at what it says beginning in verse 14. For this reason, because you're this holy temple in the Lord, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. Just pause there for a moment. Uh, we're familiar with the idea of, of people bowing to pray and bowing on their knees to pray. I don't know what sort of posture you use when you pray, if you get on your knees or if you just sit or if you stand or what you do. I don't think there's a, a like one right posture. But it's interesting because at this time, most people when they prayed in Paul's day would have prayed standing up. Not everybody. People often prayed on their knees, but most people would have prayed standing up. And so Paul's saying, I'm serious about this. Like, listen, Ephesians, I'm getting down on my knees and I'm begging God for something for you. He says this, verse 16, I'm praying that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts 
through faith. The first thing that Paul prays for is that they would be plugged into God's power. Look at how he says it in verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, so because God is rich and abundant in glory, I'm praying that he may grant you, pause there for just a moment, grant you, here's what this means, the power of God is a gift. It's a gift. It has to be granted. It's not something we can earn. A lot of us think that, you know, I got to spend all my time sort of being impressive and working hard and doing a great job so that I can kind of earn access to God's power. No, 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 no. That's a very magical way of thinking. That's how the people in Ephesus who are all caught up in magic and spells, that's how they would have thought. If I could just get the right kind of formulation of, of how I do this, then I would have access to powers. No, 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 no. Paul says, no, I'm praying that God, who's rich in his glory, would give it to you, just as a gift, as his grace. It's a, it's a gift. I, I pray that he may grant you to be strengthened with power. I don't know if we think about this very often, but we need power. You know that you live in a hostile world. Think back over your week. What were the things that just kind of the normal parts of life, the normal parts of media you experienced, the normal kind of things that happened at your job, what were, the, were there a lot of things that were really pushing you into closeness with Jesus? Like was the stream of, of life that you were in this last week just really encouraging you to trust him with all your heart and don't lead on your own understanding and, and love the way Jesus loved? It, did you get a lot of that this week? You didn't. No, you didn't. Because you live in a hostile world. You live in a world where the, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil are all conspiring to have you not care about the glory of God, to not see the beauty of Jesus, to instead put yourself on the throne of your life, to think that you're the most important thing. That's the world that is hostile to God. And Paul says, listen, I know you live in that world, and so I am praying that you would be strengthened with power. Power. You need power. You need strength. You cannot make it on your own. Do you know that? You can't get through this life treasuring Jesus, living sacrificially, pointing others to him on your own. You can't do it. You're trying to encourage your kids to see Jesus as this gloriously beautiful person who's worth giving their whole life to. You need power for that. You're trying to resist the sin that is so easily entangling you, and it's entangled you for years, and you keep trying, and you keep trying. You need power for that. You have people in your life that are difficult to love. You might call them EGR people, extra grace required. <laughs> By the way, you're that for someone else too, but... And you go, man, I'm trying to love this person, I'm trying to care for them, I'm trying... They're so hard to love. Yeah, yeah. You need power for that. Do you know that you need power? Not, not positional power, not political power, not kind of structural power. That's not what Paul's praying for. He's praying that you would have real power in your inner being because you live in a hostile world. One of the most helpful scholars and commentators for me on Ephesians has been Clinton Arnold. Here's what he says about this phrase, strengthened with power, he says, Paul's message for the Ephesians and for us is that we are weak, vulnerable people 
who were once dominated by the power of sin and the power of the evil one, but now have been rescued from these overwhelming influences by the powerful redemptive hand of God. Yet, we remain weak and vulnerable people in and of ourselves. We desperately need the power of God to repulse the influence of sin and the devil in order to live as the sons and daughters of God in the midst of a perverse generation. Do you want to live as a son or a daughter of God in the midst of a perverse generation? If so, you need power. Well, where, where will this power work? How will this power work? Well, that's what he says. I'm praying that God would grant you, that he would give you the, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So again, this isn't positional, this isn't political, this isn't structural. I'm praying that you would have this power in you, through the Spirit, in your inner being, from the inside out. That's where I'm praying for the power, because that's where the struggle really is. Yes, our circumstances are difficult. Yes, our lives can be incredibly painful, but it's the struggle within and how we respond to those that that's where we need power. And so he says, I pray that you would have power through his spirit in your inner being. The image that came in my mind as I was studying this and preparing this was the image of kayaking versus sailing. My uh, sixth grader went with some of the other junior high kids on a kayaking trip last weekend up in the Salt River, which just cracked me up, the idea of sixth graders trying to kayak, right? That, that was just a funny image. And she told me, actually, some of the people decided to stand up in their boat. And I was like, oh, that's a brilliant idea. Um, unfortunately, none of them fell out. I thought that would have been a good learning lesson for them, that you shouldn't do that. But, but they, they had a great time. But I think that kayaking is how most of us think about the Christian life. Right? A kayak's different than a canoe. A canoe has other people in it. We think, no, I'm I'm in kayaking. I'm in this thing by myself, and it's up to my paddling. I've got to paddle. I've got to paddle really hard. right? I'm not talking about the kind of kayaking where you're on a river that's just sort of taking you and you're using it to steer. No, but if you're going to kayak in a a flat, still lake, you're only going to get somewhere if you're paddling. And that's the image so many of us have of the Christian life. Yeah, I gotta help my kids. Yeah, I gotta be a better witness. Yeah, I gotta love these extra grace required people. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta. A better image of the Christian life is sailing. Now, in sailing, there's still work involved because you have to make sure the boat is in functioning manner and you have to get the sail positioned in such a way and you have to kind of study and know where the wind is blowing and know the kinds of things that will help you go. But ultimately, the power is not your power. It's the power of the wind. That's the same thing in the Christian life. That's why Paul is saying, I'm praying that you would be strengthened with power, not so you can paddle as hard as you can, but so that you could set the sails and let God show up. Do you need God to show up? Pray that God would show up, that God would work, that God would move. Yes, there's some work to do to kind of get the sail situated, to to say, Lord, I'm inviting you here, but then God's got to move. What's the goal of all of this? Well, Paul says, here's what it is. Here's why I want you to be strengthened with power through 
the Spirit in your inner being, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Here's what I really want, is I want Christ to dwell in you. What's going to give you the ability to point your kids to a compelling, beautiful vision of Jesus? Christ in you. What's going to give you the ability to resist the sin that so easily entangles Christ in you? What's going to give you the endurance and the patience to keep loving the person who requires extra grace? Christ in you. He says, I I, I pray all this so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, there's two Greek words that Paul could have, there's two words Paul could have used for dwell. The first word is a word that describes kind of a temporary dwelling, like you might dwell in a hotel or you might dwell at a friend's house to visit. And there's another word that describes a more permanent dwelling. So rather than a hotel, it's more like a home. And that's the word Paul uses here. He's saying, I'm praying that Christ would make his home in you, that he would dwell with you permanently, that this wouldn't just be kind of an occasional visit from Jesus, but that he would dwell in your heart, and that happens through faith. All of this is Paul saying, listen, here's what I'm praying. I'm praying that you'd be plugged into God's power. You need God's power so that you can have Christ in your life and live into this reality that I've been teaching you, he says. There's a second thing he prays, though. He prays that we would be lavished with God's love. Lavished with God's love. Look in the middle of verse 17. Here's our second that. Here's his second request. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. My summary of that prayer is Paul saying, I'm praying that you would be lavished with God's love. That's where he begins. He says that you, being rooted and grounded in love. The imagery is interesting here. He uses a plant imagery and a construction imagery. So rooted is the idea of trees having deep roots. He's saying, I want the deep roots, the things that, that, that helps you keep going in the midst of a storm, that helps you stand, that helps you flourish, that helps you bear fruit. I pray that the, the roots of your life would be love, love of God to you, your love to him, your love for one another, that being rooted in love, and also being grounded in love. Grounded is this construction term. It's the idea of a foundation. God willing, in the next month or so, they'll be pouring the foundation on our property next door. It'll be so cool. That'll be fun. Yeah. Pray that they do a good job of it. Right? Because some of you, some of you have had this, where you've had foundation issues in your house. Maybe they've got water underneath it, or it was built on a particular kind of place where the land shifts, or whatever it is. I mean, it's It's not a minor thing. It messes up the whole thing that is built on top of it, right? The foundation's really important. And so Paul's saying, listen, I'm praying that you would have roots in love, but I'm also praying you'd be grounded in love. That love, the love of God in particular, would be the thing that everything else is built on. That being rooted and grounded in love, you may have strength to comprehend. That word comprehend could also be translated grasp. Right, think about it. When you, when you really comprehend something, oh, I grasp that, I get that. But, but this word is also used in the scriptures to describe a city being captured, being grasped, being overtaken. 
Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm praying that you would have the strength to capture something, that this would really sink in in a profound way. Well, what is it? To comprehend with all the saints. By the way, that's important. We're not just kayaking in a boat by ourselves, but we're part of a community. We experience the love of God, not just individually, but together, collectively, with all the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth? This four-dimensional love of God. He's saying, I'm praying. I'm praying that you would have the strength to grasp it, to get it, to understand it. Being rooted and grounded in love, that you would have strength to grasp the, the breadth, the length, the height, the depth. I love how John Stott, another commentator on Ephesians, here's what he says about this. He says, the love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all mankind, especially Jews and Gentiles, which is the theme of these chapters. So broad enough to encompass all mankind, long enough to last for eternity, deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner, and high enough to exalt him to heaven. That's the love of God. You can't exhaust it. You can't stop it. It is bigger, it is greater, it is deeper, it is longer, it is wider, it is higher than you could ever imagine. And Paul's saying, but I'm praying that you would grasp it, that you would get that. In fact, this is what he continues. He says, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That's when you know you get it. You're not just kind of cognitively saying, yeah, I know that, but you actually know it. You know the difference? Like if we kind of passed out a a test here with one question on it, most of you, even those of you who wouldn't consider yourself Christians, you would pass the test, right? Because we would put a test out and it would say, does God love people? Yes. You know it. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, I'm praying that you would know it, that you would experience it. This is not just cognitive. This is experiential. This is that you would have a taste, that you would have an experience of God's love for you. I, I think about it this way. This, as you, know, you all clapped earlier, I, I graduated last Monday, and that was pretty cool. It's funny. I feel like there's all the high schoolers, and then there's grown men graduating, and it's <laughs> sort of funny. Like, um, but I graduated, and my, my, dad, my dad was there. And I've had a good relationship with my dad. My dad has told me for my whole life that he loves me. So I know my dad loves me. But there was a moment after the graduation before we kind of said goodbye and he was catching a flight the next day and where he looked me in the eye and he put his hand kind of back around my head. He rubbed his fingers through my hair. He said, I'm proud of you, son. I love you. Now, I knew he loved me. But in that moment, I had an experience of knowing he loved me. And you can even tell right now how that moved me. That's what Paul's talking about. Not that you would just know God loves you in a cognitive way, but that you'd have an experience of God putting his hands and his fingers through your hair and looking you in the eye and saying, I love you. I'm for you. I'm with you proud of you. That's what Paul's praying. 
talked to a wonderful woman after the first service who came up and said, you know, I'm dealing with cancer right now, and I know that God loves me, and I know it because of the people of God who are loving me. Because actually, if you're just talking about some sort of experience just with me and God, I feel like God might be kind of distant, but as I experience together with all the saints, I can't question that God loves me because of how they care for me and how they meet my needs and how they pray for me. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, I want you to be plugged into God's power and I want you to be lavished with God's love. And God's love here, get this, God's love is not just a warm, affectionate feeling toward you, but God's love has been demonstrated in action. Paul writes elsewhere that God shows, that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even in Ephesians, Paul has been highlighting the action of God. It's not just, well, I don't know if God feels good about me. No, 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 you do because of how God's acted. He's chosen you. He's redeemed you. He's sealed you. He's forgiven you. He's purifying you. He's going to glorify you. He has acted in history. You know this is true. You go, ah, God feels distant. That's normal. It's okay. Pray that you'd be plugged into his power and lavished with his love. But there's one more thing to pray. Paul prays here, verse 19 that we'd be filled with God's fullness. Filled with God's fullness. He said, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, middle of verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. In light of this reality that you've been forgiven by God, in light of this reality that you've been brought together as one new man, Jew and Gentile, into this new temple of God, this place where God dwells, in light of that, I'm praying that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, we can just read that and it, think about this for a moment. The fullness of God. How full is the fullness of God? Unquantifiably full? So if we're filled with the fullness of God, what, is there anything that could even help us get our minds around this, that could help us understand a vision for this perhaps? Yes, there is. The book of Exodus and the book of 1 Kings both describe moments where the people of Israel, as instructed by God, had built these dwelling places for God. In Exodus 40, a tabernacle. In 1 Kings 8, a temple. Look at what it says in those passages. In Exodus 40, it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, that's the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The tabernacle was this kind of temporary, portable temple that the people of Israel had as they navigated the wilderness. And this is saying the glory of the Lord filled it so much that Moses was like, I just can't go in there. And I don't know if it's like, I can't go in there because the glory of the Lord is so holy that he'll kill me on accident, like he'll just, if I bump into it, I'll die because it's so weighty and glorious? Or is it like, it's full, there's no room. I can't get it, like I tried to get in, but like the pressure on the door, I couldn't get in because the glory of the Lord's filling, I don't know. But that's an image, if it's full, you get the same image in 1 Kings 8. 
And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So get this. This has to be what Paul's drawing on. He's saying, I'm praying that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. Why would he pray that? Because you're the new temple. You, plural, people of God in Christ, the church, is the new temple. Sometimes people will talk about uh, the, you know, they'll say, hey, your, your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit, which is usually them trying to get you to exercise, <laughs> right? You've heard that maybe if you've been around church. Your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. You should eat better and you should work out more. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Maybe that's true, that you should eat better and exercise more. But when the Bible talks about your body being a temple, it's not so you would do more sit-ups. It's so you would be filled with the fullness of God, so that you would understand that your identity, that your role as the people of God is that we are the place where God dwells. We're the place God wants to make a home We have the opportunity by God's spirit to be filled with the fullness of God. That's Paul's prayer. You'd be plugged into God's power, that you'd be lavished with God's love, that you'd be filled with God's fullness. That's an audacious set of prayers, isn't it? You go, well, gosh, well, God, what's his confidence that God would answer that? Well, there's a few things in this passage. On the front end of it, you see that This is the God from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So he's powerful over all people and all things. You see in verse 16 that he's rich in glory. So if God is powerful everywhere, rich in glory, then he's definitely capable. And that's what Paul says in verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. God is able, he says, to do far more abundantly. That's, a, that's one Greek word that means super abundantly. Now just think about abundantly. What's abundant? Abundance already overflowing. It's already maxed out. It's already, there's way more than you can fit. He's saying God is able to do super abundantly, far more abundantly beyond, immeasurably more than all you ask, he says, and all you think. That's an interesting thing to me. Because there's things that you kind of get the courage to ask God God can do more than you ask. There's some things you're embarrassed to ask God. You're like, oh, he wouldn't want to answer that. I don't know if he, uh." So you just think about it. You never really even articulate. He says he's able to do super abundantly, measurably more than you ask or even than you think. Now here's what amazes me especially about this passage. This is written by a guy in prison. So he's not saying... I prayed for a house and God gave me a beach house. You know, I prayed for God to provide and God made me wealthy. That's not what this is. This isn't a health and wealth verse. This is Paul saying, do you want to know what's supernatural? Do you want to know what's amazing? 
It's people, ordinary people, who are the very temple of God, filled with God's fullness, lavished in God's love, plugged into God's power. That's the far more abundantly, and that's how God will answer. And look at that last part. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. The Christ and his church are not meant to be separated. You can't say, well, I love Jesus. I don't care about the church. No, it's two, two wings of the same airplane. And the place where God's glory is going to be revealed is the, the church. We're coming up uh, last Monday was 10 years ago, last Monday, was our first prayer meeting for this church with me and there were six of us there. And uh, so 10 years ago this summer, I just was doing a lot of stuff to try to prepare to get this church started. And one of my favorite things that I did was I would meet with anyone I could meet with who I thought cared about this community, cared about the Southeast Valley, and I would just ask them questions. And I would interview them, and I'd say, hey, I care about this community. You obviously care about this community. I want to ask, and I would ask them things about who's here, how's this, you know, just all sorts of stuff. Here was my favorite question to ask them, because a lot of these people were not necessarily followers of Jesus. My favorite question was, I'd, and I'd say, hey, I know this is going to be a hard question, so I'll give you tons of grace. Just think of whatever comes to mind. If you had to prove that God was alive in the Southeast Valley, what would you point to? If you had to prove that God was alive here, what would you point to? And they'd go, that is a hard question. <laughs> you know, they'd think for a few minutes and they'd, and they'd point to something. Here's a question. What if they pointed to the church? Not the building, but the people. They said, you know what, I don't even really believe what, what Christians believe. I don't, I don't know about those folks at Redemption Gateway. I don't know that I believe what they believe. But they seem to have a power that no one else has. They, like they pray and God answers it. And so when they tell me they're praying for me, I don't even believe in their God, but I'm like, thank you, please do. And you know what, those, those people at Redemption Gateway, they, the main thing that drives them is love. Like, yeah, they have convictions about stuff. They have beliefs that I don't really agree with, but, but they love. They love hard-to-love people. They love generously. They love sacrificially. I don't know if there's a God, but boy, they love. What if that was the answer? That's what Paul's praying for, that we would be plugged into God's power, lavished with God's love, and filled with all the fullness of God. Not so that Redemption Gateway or any other church would get the glory, but so that the glory would go out through all generations for Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray that according to the riches of your glory, you would give us the gift of being strengthened with your power, that that power would start on the inside and transform us. Jesus, thank you that you want to dwell with us permanently in our hearts through faith. And God, rooted, grounded in love, would you give us the ability to truly grasp how immeasurably wonderful your love is, to have experiences of it together through your church that go beyond our 
cognition and into our experiences. God, fill us with your fullness. God, we pray even now that we would be evidence that you are in fact alive in this community. We pray it in Christ's name, amen.